Welcome to Slice of Life, where we give time and space to your story. Stories that need to be heard, first-person accounts of how tough life can be, and how we have everyday heroes walking among us. Each week, you'll hear interviews, documentaries, and creative radio, all slices of life, real life as it happens. I'm your host, Randy Zimmerman, and Slice of Life is produced at WMNF in Tampa, Florida. On today's Slice of Life, we'll hear from local teens trying to figure out life as they figure out how to produce a podcast. We'll also hear from a short-term version of one person's long road from abuse and homelessness to founding her own organization helping others. But first, we'll hear about the Buffalo Soldiers, a group of motorcycle riders whose name honors the all-black Army Regiment. Dwayne Terry, known around WMNF as DT, chats with the Buffalo Soldiers National President, Nathan Motown Mack. They discuss the feelings of power and privilege they derive from riding around on a thousand cc's. I'm sitting here with uh, one of the most prestigious bike clubs in America, maybe the world. And uh, for me, it's a personal honor to be in a room with this gentleman. And uh, I'm new to uh, the bike world. I'm about three years into with my Harley, and so I'm learning a lot. But as I was beginning to try to learn as much as I can, I was also trying to figure out, you know, who's in this space already that I can learn from. Uh, and I've got to send shouts out to my cousin, Sean, over there, out there in Nashville, who put me up on this group years ago and told me about him. So when I finally got an opportunity to meet him, meet someone from the group and talk to him, I was blessed. And I called Sean and I, I was excited and told him all about it. Sound like he in trouble though. So I, <laughs> he in trouble. All right, that's Sean. Sean <laughs> in, in trouble. All right. And so, anyways, I am here with the national president of the Buffalo Soldiers, and I, and I got I'm smiling because I always thought the Buffalo Soldiers originated in Buffalo, where I'm from, Buffalo, New York, and that is not the case. And so, let's talk about first about the the beginning stages of the Buffalo Soldiers. How did this this group come together? I think it after one of the wars. This is kind of where it started. Yes, the organization itself was started in. 1987, but it became a national association in 1993. And so from there, it just blossomed, right? And it was like like-minded people who wanted to bring their wives in. So we're pretty much the only motorcycle club to have their wives. So we have females and then you have a little bit of everybody, veterans and, you know, everybody. So uh, we also have law enforcement, you know, in the group. So, you know, that's a big to do, right, for a motorcycle club. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, our like-mindedness is to do good in the hood, as we call it. Well, before we get too deep in that, let me let me find a little bit more about you. Where did you come from? I mean, your, your parents, your siblings, your town, your schooling. <laughs> like, how did you get to where you are today? So, actually, I grew up uh, in Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, first person to ever graduate from high school in my family. All right. <laughs> and, uh, and I kind of just took it from there. Uh, I got my philanthropy from my grandmother because she always went out and helped people and fed people. And so my spirit is is led around that, right? And so I've been riding since I was 16. Never wanted to be with a motorcycle club. Uh, my brothers, they don't ride, but my uncle owned a motorcycle for like 20 years. And for 10 years of that, I know he never had a car. He rode in the wintertime and the snow, so it kind of got me into it. And then uh, God, who used to live on our block, his name is Rabbit. Rabbit has been with his club for 53 years. He's 75 years old now. It kind of got me into the motorcycle thing. Right? Where And your siblings and your brothers, where are you in the age of? I'm the middle. You're the middle. I'm the middle. So and it was an older uh, brother that had, that rode first? No, my brother, none, neither one of my brothers none, ride. Okay. Yeah, so my older brother, he's 12 years older than I am. 
He still lives in Detroit. My baby brother, he's in Detroit. Um, and so pretty much I come from a small family, right? And so pretty much that's what we have, just each other, right? My desire to ride came from my uncles who was in the Afro Dogs up in Buffalo. Okay. And I was young and, you know, I guess just seeing him pull up on a motorcycle and ride and probably, you know, in, inspired me to one day want to ride, you know? And so I think after that, I got my first mini bike and so kind of grew from there. Uh, and it, I bring that up because I wonder, like, how many times do, you know, when we think about what inspire us to ride, sometimes it's seeing someone else close in our family that rides that you get to learn more about it than just seeing it yeah. fly past you, right? Yeah, my thing was the uh, being in the military, mm-hmm. and that was everybody's breakout. That was their getaway, riding. Even though I grew up with people riding, mm-hmm. you know, I really wasn't, hey, I one day I want to do that, right? My thing was when we came back, from combat, you know, everybody just went and bought motorcycles, right? Mm. And we just started riding mm. again. And uh, pretty much that was my getaway. And so my what people, you hear people say, I'm just so free, right? You know, it's a place mm. where, you know, you can get on your bike and ride across yes. town, across okay. country. Nobody's talking to you. Right, time right. to think, time to pray, trying to figure out what you're going to do tomorrow, mm. right? And just get on it and just enjoy, right? And then it's a, it's a culture of people want to ask you questions all the time, right? Hey, how did you get into it? Or... You know, that kind of stuff. But what I've learned over the years is that motorcycle allows me to get in and stay in young people's lives, mm-hmm. right? Okay. It's a conversation piece, right? So you'll see a lot of us have nice-looking bikes, pictures in the bikes and all that, and it's a way to break the ice with young folks and older folks sometimes, right, and get in and let them know we're here for them and take care of them. But, you know, my whole thing is just I love motorcycles. That's just the only way I can put it. Been intrigued with them since I was a kid. So, well, what was your introduction to to the club? So, introduction to this club, I was actually out on the highway, <laughs> and I saw. Never wanted to join a motorcycle club, right. even though I was around motorcycles all my life, right? And I saw this thing, and it hit me. It was the only patch that I saw that had a black man. Oh, and that's unheard of, right? And so we're still on the motorcycle club that has a black man on their back, right? And our founder, Ken Dreammaker Thomas, was law enforcement guy for over 30 years. And he started the club, and that's actually his patch. That's his face on the patch, right? And so it just took off from there, and I made some inquiries, checked them out like everybody should, right? Found out what they do, uh, educate, serve, you know? And so that's what I wanted to do. And when I looked at them and went to a a couple of events, I said, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. These are the kind of people I can hang around. They're trying to do good in the hood, and that's where I'm from, mm-hmm. right? Grew up poor, and this is a way to give back on a continuous basis. I can ride across country, meet new people all the time, and give back. So help me understand what that – I haven't done it. So help me understand what that cross-country ride is like. What is the – what is that like? Well, um, like you guys are stopping in places and, and resting, but it depends. So I'm a night rider, right? Okay. And I can ride as long as I'm riding. But my whole thing is the, the passion and the love between the brother and sisterhood. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, I was going from Alabama, Tuscaloosa to Dallas, right? And they, they hate when I ride by myself, right? <laughs> so this guy right here rode with me. And uh, you, you really get to not only know people and meet people, but really know who they are, mm-hmm. right, and find out what kind of family men they are and family women and blah, blah, blah. You know, just different conversations along the way. Every stop, you learn something new about everybody, right? And, um, you know, the freedom to go across country and meet new people, impact people's lives for the better, you know, you can't beat it. 
know, and, and again, when you can drop off a piece of the history of the Buffalo Soldiers, mm -hmm. you can drop off a piece of your own spirit, making somebody else's life better, right? And then you can get on that motorcycle and just feel the power mm -hmm. and the wind and the, and the rain mm -hmm. and the cold, <laughs> right? <laughs> and everything else that comes with it, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a way to make memories. And you're making memories with different people all around the country, if not the world. Because, yeah. you know, when we went to the 120th anniversary, we met people from China, Budapest, um, Colombia, Ghana, right? They were all there for the 120th, just meeting people from all over the world that love to ride. Now, I remember when I watched one of the first videos I seen, I think you were here in Tampa. We just talked about it before we started recording. And um, it was so many bikes. I had never seen that many bikes in, in a line. I kept wondering, like, when is the end? How do you organize what was the number of those? That that was about 400? No. Yeah, so in that ride, we actually had, uh, it was only 300 bikes. 300 bikes. How do you organize 300 bikers to, you know, ride in a... Well, we have, we have actually, we actually have classes. Okay. And our instructors are internal. They're all MSF qualified, mm -hmm. you know, so they're all instructors. And so we even have a drill team, right? And uh, we teach everybody how to ride. And organizing it is simple. We get with the local law enforcement to block and tackle. But we actually have people that are trained to do that within keeping that formation control. Mm -hmm. We ride a bike and a half apart, even on the highway. Okay. We ride a bike and a half apart. But we train. They're staggered? They were staggered. Okay. Now, we, a lot of us, depends on who we're riding with, we'll ride, you know, together. Okay. You know, so uh, side by side. And in, in, in that, the president's always up front, or is he get to choose where he usually wants to Usually by number two. He can choose where he wants to go, okay. but usually he's riding two. Okay. Right? And you road captains, I guess. Have yeah, we have road captains, captains. You know, we have internal road captains. Then we have road captains that are blocking, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I make sure they're taking care of the formation, checking on the people That's and all sweet. that. So if anybody's listening and you're curious to what I'm talking about, you can go on YouTube and you can put in Buffalo Soldiers uh, Tampa. And you can see an amazing video of the numbers of the people who were in that line. And I'm sure that's not the largest group you've had to. No, the largest group we had when we went to uh, Louisiana mm -hmm. on the Poncha train, you know, it goes like 22 miles across. And we cover 18 miles of the bridge. <laughs> Dude, so, now how you do you organize that? Is that something that, I guess, how do you get, how's that, how do all those people get word that this, this event is happening? They all belong to our organization. Okay. So they're all And so touched. all in organization. And we invite some independents to come out and ride. And then we um, stagger the formations. However, mm -hmm. we stage in an area where we can get everybody in, and then we line everybody up, and then we take off. So it usually takes us about 30 minutes to get, finish getting out of the parking lot from the time we start. But uh, like mm -hmm. this Saturday, we're going to have a procession, and we cut it off at 400 bites because the local uh, police can only handle that many. Okay. So we're going to cut it off at 400. Okay. And so uh, – and, and I don't want to get into – you know, you, you spoke earlier about, you know, giving back and having an impact on, on communities and kids. Uh, and, and so I want to get back to how that comes about. How do you choose an organization to go help out or, or, or do they reach out to you and ask for your help? Well, we actually go into that community prior to going okay. and we get with the local folks, you know, whether it's the mayor, whether it's visit Tampa Bay. And we find out where these places are that we need to go out and try to help. Right. And so we talk to the mayor. Uh, Jane Castle, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and uh, she was like, hey, look, I got a school over here that really could use you guys' help. So we picked that one, and then we talked to Gwen Myers okay. and then picked out a school that she had, mm -hmm. right? And then we have random bags in case we need to go to other schools, right? Okay. So, but at that point during those schools, we do the backpack giveaways. And okay. so this year we're going to give out 1,500 backpacks. 
Is there a is there any age limit to how young a person can be to join the soldiers, Buffalo Soldiers? Do you have that? Is that there, is there any requirements? Uh, twenty one. Twenty one. Okay. Yeah. Do you have least, you have younger people? Because it's we have not. Okay. Cause we don't have is, any. We I think the youngest folks we may have like thirty eight okay. years of age. My engineer's young, and me and him go back and forth. He hates it. I'm on a Harley. I hate it. He's on a crotch rocket. He well, tell, first of all, he <laughs> that's because he hasn't uh, figured out what a real love is. Yet. Right. Right. <laughs> We talked about um, the introduction to the club. What is it? What does it take to become a member of Buffalo Soldiers? How does that? One, be willing to ride, educate, and serve mm-hmm. your community. Ride, and educate, your, and serve. And uh, be able to meet the minimum requirements, have at least a 750cc mm-hmm. motorcycle registered in your name and mm-hmm. with all the proper documentation. And then be willing to just get out there and give classes and get into your community and do the right thing, you know, and be ready to ride, you know, like-mindedness. Very simple, nothing hard. Uh, it takes a minimum of nine months to finish once you start. Okay. But um, at the end of the day, it's very rewarding, especially if you come in and do the things that we say we do and you make that a part of your daily life. It's real simple. With that being said, I remember when I brought my Harley three years ago from a guy, he says, hey, you're going to get tired of, you know, Doing this, right? You know the peace sign down. The yeah, yeah. Sign. And so, and 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 I noticed that when I'm riding and someone's coming, it it, it happens so. It's natural. Uh, it's not, but it, not so much with crotch rocketers. No, right. So I, do they not get the memo, or is that a different world? I mean, do they not have Again, the same respect the, for it, riding? I won't say it's it's not the same respect. It's just the culture is different. Okay, the culture is different, and uh, it goes back for me. It goes back to the maturity level, right? You know. When you, you drop them deuces, you know, you letting people know, hey, look, I'm having a good time. You having a good time. Hey, how you doing? And keep okay. it moving. I'm glad you said that. One guy told me, he said, he said that that's actually also like a prayer, that I pray that you make it home. Home safe. Home safe. Absolutely. Home yeah. And, it's, and I tell you, riding, it's it's really, really enriching and rewarding when I when it happens. Oh, yeah. You know, when a guy said, you're going to get tired of doing it, I, I, I don't see myself getting tired of doing that. Like, it's a connection. Right. With bikers on a road. You know, I see you, you see me. We both pray and hope that each other going. Like, you're out there and you your bike break down. Other bikers will, for one, probably pull over because we're in this world together. And right? you never know. And in the biker community, we're so together. Mm-hmm. You know, it may be somebody, if you break down on the road, it'll probably be somebody that don't even look like you coming to help right, you. Right, right, right. Which yeah. is a great thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a commonality. Mm-hmm. You know, all the things and pressures of, just say, Florida right now, Right. You don't have that when you're right. on your bike. You know, everybody on that bike is doing their thing, and they're doing it together. So that's what's it's, it's been a great world. I've been really interested in, in it since I got into it. I found a piece that I, I knew was there, you know, from my, my mini my mini bike and, and, and moped days, you know, finally getting back to it as an adult, having to deal with so much more pressure in life. You Absolutely. Know, it's, a, it's a dream to get out and ride. And I got a little bit of music on my bike, so for me – I'll get up. My, my my guy asked me, "Hey, did you ride today, man?" I'll ride to the mailbox if I have to get up, just to get a ride in. Right. I'll ride to the mailbox and back just to get it in. But to get on that road and to get on there and just be play my music and ride and have that that wind running through my hair, <laughs> it's just it's like a, wind running through your hair. Yeah. Right? I get it through my beard, right? I ain't got no hair up here, right? Neither, so I, get, I, I still hey. say it, it still feels good. <laughs> right. Right. But I do, and I think um, it's interesting because I find um, you know a lot of people who do ride all understand. You know the risk, but all understand the the pleasure as well and the reward. And so I, I I'm glad to see that there are clubs that are out here trying to get young people exposed to something Absolutely. that they can may take up. 
And, and, and I love what you said about the black image on the back. That is what I seen that caught my eye. And I thought, and now that you mentioned it, I can't really say I've seen any other groups that have, has it as well. So yeah, you won't see it. We're we're the only one, and and I'm proud of it. Yeah, and, and you should be. to to have us exposed that way, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I want to mention too is yeah. we have people who don't ride. Okay, we have associate members, people who come out and support our cause and what we do. A lot of times, it's the wives or the husbands mm-hmm. or the full patch members that we call them coming to help. And be involved in what we do in the community as well. Are, can tr- are trikes part of the club? Can people we have them? trikes. We okay. have gold wing trikes, Harley trikes. We okay. have can ams. We don't allow slingshots. Okay. Right. Uh, anything with a steering wheel, we don't we don't okay. do that. Okay. Right. Okay. So, but uh, we have a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, Kawasaki, Yamahas, Hondas, you name it, Harleys. Indians. And what is your biggest event? What is what's your annual? This biggest, is right now, right now, okay. we're doing our National Association of Buffalo Soldiers and Troopers Motorcycle Club. This is our national meeting. Okay. So not only do we go out into the community and do good in the hood, but we also offer classes internally. So we have secretary, treasurer classes, new presidents, new vice president classes. We have estate planning classes, you know, all types of classes that will help the members internally you know, to be better or expose them to something new. And you got things going all week long this week. All week, all week. So, right. you know, Monday, like I said, today is Conan's Barbecue. Come mm-hmm. out, you know, it's uh, free to the community if you want to come out. We're going to feed people until all the food's gone. <laughs> You'll probably have four or five, a hundred of us over there Okay. Uh, this evening. And then tomorrow again is uh, Dad Bush Garden sponsored by uh, Lamborghini at Sarasota. You know, sponsor the kids mm-hmm. and, and do that. And we're going to get them some history. And then Wednesday, we're going to go to Tampa Hope. And Tampa Hope, we're going to hand out toiletries, and uh, folks are going to come over. And then I actually have a faith service team in a motorcycle club, right? And my national chaplain and his staff are actually going to put on a performance, choir performance with two other choirs from uh, Tampa. And so we're going to go over there and do that. And then on Thursday, we'll have our meet and greet by Circle Drive, by the convention center outside. Mm -hmm. So we'll be over there doing our meet and greet. And then on Friday, we'll have our general meeting, right? And then we'll, that night, we'll have our dinner dance. Mm-hmm. And there's an all-white party, mm-hmm. right? So we'll do that on Friday. And then Saturday is when we'll have the procession going around the city and uh, letting people see who we are. Yeah, right, right. right? Yeah, awesome. So you'll hear music everywhere. You'll hear loud pipes everywhere. You'll, you'll have all of that going on. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're looking forward to. And then Sunday, we'll be heading up out of here, right. going to... Probably do something else. Well, I know you got a busy schedule, so I ain't gonna hold you much. I do wanted to. I wanted to wrap up by um, thanking you for one uh, for being here and 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 taking time out to do this interview. Um, two, answering some of my my personal questions that give me a chance to have a better insight on on not only the bikers world but what the the Buffalo Soldiers are about. This is really an important interview for me because I'm gonna keep this in my archives forever. Uh, I am gonna come out tonight. Oh, this is a question: Women riders, a whole lot of them, and members. Yes. Okay. okay. Where they're they're full patch members like mm-hmm. we are. Like I said, we have men and women in our club, right? Matter of fact, we're gonna have our drill team on Saturday okay. be performing at what's the high school? I think it's the uh, Howard Blake High School. Yeah, Howard Blake. We're trying to use their parking lot. Our drill team will be out there okay. performing. Okay. But we have like I said, men, women, we have some of everybody here, right? Regardless of their professions, you know, nurses, 
doctors, lawyers. We have some everything. They they look raggedy, right? <laughs> when you see them, but there's a whole bunch of good people. Right, and then my man right here, organizer. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's EOD. He still does that on a little bit, right? He's, he's one of those guys that go out and find the bombs, right? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> he's better than the dog sniffers, right? Because <laughs> he got more courage, you know. He, so, but but yeah, we have people that do. I mean, from all professions, right? You know, I write contracts. Okay. You know, for the government. So, you know, it's just a different group of people. And the beauty of it is being able to walk into a room and ask a question and someone in that room can answer that question. Ain't ain't nothing like it. So for for being president, like what is the pressure of that? Just before we wrap up, like how much pressure is it to be a president and how much work do you have to do on a daily basis as it pertains to, you know, managing the club? So uh my secretary my national secretary right which is uh reggie marable but we go by he goes by the ride named roadrunner mm-hmm. we're up to like 12 31 o'clock in the morning sometime mm-hmm. trying to strategize on how we can make the organization better mm-hmm. right for me it's no real pressure 26 years in the army i retired as a sergeant major my thing is taking care of people so whatever's best for the organization that's what we try to do it's not an individual thing so i don't have an agenda on a personal level I have an agenda on an organizational level, right? And so I try to meet that every day. In other words, be better than I was yesterday. Make this organization better than what it was yesterday. And so that's what we strive for. My uh, my guy Chuck, Chuck Core has a, uh, a show here on uh, Saturday, Friday nights. Saturday nights, Friday nights, I believe. And um, that Southern Soul, he plays a lot Ooh, of it. Ooh, you got to get it. Yeah, yeah. So you guys are very familiar Hey, look, with look. My, and my favorite song, Southern Soul right now, is uh, called A Little Weight by King George. You heard okay, that? King George, yes. Oh, <laughs> that song lot, right yeah. there. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to hear some of that sometime this week. Oh, yeah, you're going to hear some of that. Like, King George got it going on more than once, right? So, But the Southern Soul is, I mean, it's it's relaxing when you're on your bike, mm-hmm. right? That Southern Soul gets you in a groove and it gets you, it's like Motown, right? Mm-hmm. Motown music. We all know the words mm-hmm. of those songs. Mm-hmm. You know, that rap is cool. However, you get lost in all the minutia right right but with southern soul old school music parliament funkadelics you'll hear all that you know that's music that we can relate to mm-hmm. especially at our ages right, right? right so and with that being said where can people get more information about the organization or about the events that are happening this weekend we actually uh posted it okay. uh through the city okay. uh, visit tampa bay okay and been pushing it out all you got to do is ask for motown okay motown if, to get to the right person if someone ends up hearing this on a podcast after this events have taken place and still have interest in what you guys are doing do you guys have a website that they can go to we do if you go to nabstmc.com that is our website mm-hmm. and you can get all the information from there points of contacts for everybody Okay, all right. And so with that being said, I want to thank you again. I hope you guys do make it up to Buffalo. They need to see somebody. Those kids up there need to see somebody. They do. Like they do. And, 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 and we're ready. I got right, people right. that can get up to Buffalo in no time. Good, and, good, good. And then link up with other folks. All right. But like I said, we deal with like-minded people. You know, if you're trying to do good in the hood, that's what we're going to try to do. Well, I want to thank you for coming through again today, and I'll see you later no, on. I appreciate you. All right. All right. All right. Thank you. Yes, sir. That was Dwayne Terry talking with Nathan Motown Mack of the Buffalo Soldiers. There's a good chance you'll hear more about motorcycles on Slice of Life. But next up, I talk with Marla Batista of the Batista Project. She tells us what her organization does and what motivates her to do this tough work. Someone actually told me this on the streets once. Um, we were passing out food, which is one of the things we do. We distribute snack packs um, in our organization. And one day we were passing out food and one of the guys said, well, what's this? 
I said, well, it's some food for you. He said, I said, I'm homeless, not hungry. And I was like, oh, wow. And I was like, that struck me because I was like, there is, there is a lot of food. We are distributing a lot of food, not just our organization, but so many organizations mm-hmm. in the Tampa Bay area, all over the world, really. We're, we're distributing this food to the hungry, right? We're saying right. these people are hungry, but why? There's so many foundational aspects to why these people are hungry, but are we addressing those other issues or are we just saying, here's food? Are we well, I, I the- went to a distribution about two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and um, it was evident because there was both food and clothes and um, uh, tents and uh, a variety of things that were given out by different organizations. Mm-hmm. All of those things I just mentioned was a different organization giving them out. And it was evident that you know some people did not have a home because they talked about their tent. They talked about their tent being picked up by the police. Mm. Uh, there were also people who it was evident that they they had a place to go, uh, but they were there for the other things, the food and the clothing distributions. Yeah. So tell me about some of the people that you've met and what some of their stories have been that have impacted you. I've met a variety of, of amazing humans. Um, the stories that hit me the hardest are the stories of children in uh, exiting foster care. Um, there are some places, some cities, some counties that offer um, long-term support services to um, young adults exiting foster care. But there are some cities that say, you're 18. Okay, great. You got to go. Good luck with your life. And then they end up on the backs of an organization that serves unhoused community members because they're homeless. Mm. And so I, I really, that hits me the hardest because they're not giving, they're not given a fair chance. Well, that's also part of your story, right? Yeah. That's part of my story is, you know, I was, I was one of those kids. I was never actually in foster care. Um, but my, my father, my biological father passed away when I was six, he had HIV. Um, we lived in LA at the time. Um, I'm actually from Watts. And, um, so in the eighties, HIV was a big deal. Um, and so he passed away in 1989 of, um, HIV and, um, my him and my mother were divorced prior to that and my mother remarried um and she married a new man and had new children in her new relationship and um she ended up being diagnosed with breast cancer in 1990 i want to say and um in 1993 she passed away when i was 9 years old hmm. um so my my father and my mother died in I didn't have anyone to go to. So I was left to my stepfather who abused me until I was 18 years old and then kicked me out onto the streets. And there were so many programs growing up that were for like minority children without fathers, Mm -hmm. but there weren't really any programs for kids without mothers. Um, And because I was in a home, I had okay amenities, right? From the outside looking in, I was okay because I had a place to live. I had clothes on my back. Mm -hmm. I attended school. I had food. Mm -hmm. So no one was really concerned. There were so many times when I look back in my childhood where I could have been helped. 
I could have been helped. My, me and my siblings could have been helped. Um, there was a, there was a time where my sister, um, she was in kindergarten and she went to school with a big welt on her neck. And um, from what? Um, she was beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she went to school and showed her teacher. I was in middle school at the time. And uh, all I remember is the police coming to my school. I had I was called to the nurse's office. I had to strip down and show them my body, which I was, I want to say wow. about 12 years old. Wow. That was a very defining moment for me in my childhood because not only was I being abused at home, but then some random strangers wanted to look at my body. Um, and that was very scary for me. And then after that, um, so how did you equate that in, in your mind and or emotional being to being abused then by um, authorities or other supposedly, I guess, safe adults? At the time, I couldn't I couldn't appropriately equate that. Right. Mm-hmm. As a kid, I'm just like, I'm scared. Right. Right. I was nervous. I didn't know what they were looking for, what they weren't looking for. And so it was just scared. I, that's the only thing I could remember was being scared. Okay. Um, and then afterward, um, I actually was escorted home. I was put into the back of a police car hmm. and taken back to my home. And I remember. The so I'm guessing po- you felt like you did something wrong. Right. Absolutely. As a young black girl who's now been stripped, you know, searched, basically, I'm not not strip search, but, you know, they they right. checked my body and then they put me in the back of a police car, took me home. The police officer opened the back door of the police car. My stepfather was standing outside in the driveway and the police officer asked me as my stepfather stood there staring at me, do you feel safe living here? Do you want to go back into that home? As a 12 year old girl, I remember saying. Yes. Mm. Yes. So you're already scared. Your sister was beat mm-hmm. by this guy, mm-hmm. your stepfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you go to school, theoretically safe. They pull you into the office, make you strip, stare at your body, put you into the back of the police car, scared to death, and you're coming face to face with the person who you know gave that welt to your sister and asked, do you feel safe? Yes. Now, again, I, I'm an, you know, middle-aged woman now, and I'm thinking to myself, all I want to do is go into my bedroom and close the door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we know that wasn't going to happen, mm. um, depending on the answer that I gave. Well, what was going through your head? What did you want to fear? Just I'm just, I'm just, terrified. I'm terrified. I wasn't going to be honest. How right. could I have been honest? Mm. I had to live there. Right. And there were multiple times throughout my childhood where I was put in a confrontational situation mm. where someone asked me, hey, do you feel safe in front of my abuser? Mm. As a woman, now with the with the the information that I have now, even today, I would say yes. Even today. Mm. Because I know that there aren't very many support services um, for women like me. So how long ago was this? This is decades ago. Dec- literally. And you have these same kids now who you're meeting at 18 years old, kicked out on the street. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between then and now? Well, the difference between then and now, I don't think there's a difference in the system. Mm. I really don't. I don't think there's a difference in the system. I think we're still doing the same old things, seeking different results. 
And the results are the same. I mean, if you look at the at the cycle of oppression, if you look at the cycle of injustice for kids like me. Um, so we start here where we're at, you know, we're that innocent child, right? Something traumatic happens in our lives mm-hmm. and we're either abused or, or neglected in some kind of way or our parents pass away. And then we end up in the, the child protective services system, right? Or the child youth justice system. Um, and then all of a sudden, all these things continue to happen. Now we have a bad attitude or we're misbehaving. Then we're put into a correctional facility for youth, mm-hmm. right? A youth detention center. And then we go through all of these counseling and support support services, mm-hmm. I'm going to call it. And then we go to, so we go from home to foster care, to jail, to foster care, to jail, to foster care, to being 18 and homeless. Mm. And that's literally the cycle. And so when I see these young kids, I even go to the jails today. I go to the youth detention centers because I want to stop this cycle. And I tell the kids, if you're not being supported by someone in your life, I'm sorry. You have to support yourself. And I know you don't know how I know because I didn't know how. Right. But make sure that you're okay, and you have to do what's best for yourself. What's best for yourself is learning how to take care of your physical body first, Mm. because if you can keep your physical body safe and this this is first of all, this is something I shouldn't have to tell a child. Right. Because I we should have trusting adults who help keep us safe. Yeah. But when we don't, I have to make sure that that child can keep them their self safe. So this is something I even teach my kids. What are they confused about in terms of keeping their bodies safe? They believe that all adults are doing what's right for them. Mm. Um, that's something that I thought too. And, and so people will say, well, why did you make the decision to stay in your home? I try to run away and I was always a runaway child. That's an offense. Right. We then get sent back or we get sent to jail. Hmm. Um, and so I tried all of these different tactics. And so all of these things led to the same result, which was me becoming homeless. Mm-hmm. All of the things led to the same result. And I didn't know how to take care of myself. I didn't know how to do what was best for myself. And there was no one, no one out there who was willing to do what was best for me. Um, and so I have to teach kids how to do that. And so, yes, keeping your own physical body safe and, and knowing that, you know what, sometimes an adult might ask you to do some things that are not okay. You don't have to do them. Are you more explicit with the kids that you see in detention? Then we can be on the radio. I mean, there are things that we can't say on the radio. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am. Um, and a lot of times the kids are just like me. The little girls, they're black and brown girls, just like me mm. sitting in there. And, you know, they've gotten themselves into a situation. I actually met a girl there and she was saying, and it literally makes me tear up when I think about it. She said, I sat in jail with her and I was talking to her and she was 15 and she had truancy charges. Mm-hmm. And so she was in jail for skipping school all the time. And I said, why, why would you do that? She said, my mom's on drugs. She said, we haven't seen our mom in a week. I have little brothers and sisters. Would you leave them at home to go to school? Would you leave little kids at home by themselves to go to school? And this little girl was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. I said, you're right. I wouldn't. I'd stay home too. She said, I, my mom hasn't come home in a week. 
And how old are her siblings? She said she had a five-year-old sibling. She had a seven-year-old sibling and she had an infant. And these were all her siblings and she was 15. And imagine who could she go to? Could she could call the police, but what would happen? All those kids would go to foster care. Literally. And they would all go to separate places and she may not ever see them again. Is that real? Is that, or is that a fear? That is a fear, but it is a real fear. It is absolutely real. So it's real. Yes. A lot of times. And um, today, 2023. Yes. Five siblings are pulled out of a house, put into foster care, never to see each other again. Yes. So, um, and so our organization makes blankets and pillows every year out of military uniforms. Uh, my husband's active duty. In and the your Army, organization is? The Bautista Project. Um, and so. My husband's active duty. And so every time the military changes a uniform, they just throw away the old uniforms. Mm. And so I was like, one, my husband's in him for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so he's changed a lot of uniforms. And so one day I tripped over a bin of his uniforms in the garage and I asked him, what are, what are you going to do with all of these uniforms? He's like, I don't know, save them. And I'm like, okay, why don't we do something for kids in need? Why don't we make like blankets and pillows for foster kids. This idea was super random. I have no idea how to sew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this came about. It was a great idea. It was an absolutely wonderful idea. Um, and my husband didn't know how to sew. So I don't, I just pulled it out of thin air and was like, voila, here's an idea. I'm an idea fairy. Um, and so I pulled it out of thin air, but we started cutting uniforms and my six year old, my six year old is a fashion designer. Uh -huh. Um, she's now 11. We started this project about five years ago and she actually knew how to sew, Wow, which was weird. Um, <laughs> She had this, you know, the like kids the sewing, sewing machine, savant, right? Yeah. She had the little baby sewing machine. And so of course we started watching YouTube videos to learn how to sew. And it was like straight lines. So like we, we got this right. Uh -huh. Well, little did I know it was tougher than I thought, but I have a trick. If you go to a church uh -huh. with older ladies yeah. and you take coffee and donuts, yeah. they'll sew anything you want. Really? Yeah. So I made a lot of friends at the church, <laughs> at the church, which church did you go to? Um, so, well, in New York, we, I actually went to the Army Community Services Center and I found a sewing guild. Wow. And so and, and they it, were very happy to take old soldier uniforms and make pillows. Yes. So we had to cut the material. So we would start cutting all the material, all the uniforms up. Uh -huh. um, and we would sew and we would buy uh, like pieces of fabric, the cotton pieces to pair with the military uniforms. And then we'd buy the flannel backing and the stuffing for the pillows. But uh, my husband and my daughter started. So we started off making about 12 blankets, mm. you know, just as many Small as number. we can make. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we moved here to Tampa. So this started, this project actually started in New York, in mm -hmm. Watertown, New York, um, when we were stationed there. And um, this program just continued to grow. And so here in Tampa, we, um, I, I want to say, I'm not sure which news channel, but anyway, a news channel came and we were at Keeney United Methodist Chapel in Tampa, Florida. Mm -hmm. And that's where we were doing our sewing circles because- it was a great place. It was a church. Mm -hmm. The older ladies loved to sew and nice. hang out and eat cookies and drink <laughs> coffee. Um, and so I'd provide the cookies and coffee and the material. All you got to do was sit here, gossip, and sew. And so it was Sweet. a great setup. Yeah. And so uh, one of the news channels came out and covered it. And then all of a sudden, 
I got every 90 something year old lady in Tampa huh. donating all of their fabric. I had a lady donate all of her fabric, her sewing machine from 1900, as my kids say. Um, she, but it wasn't really a 1900 sewing machine. It was. No, it is. Oh, really? And I have no idea what to, it's in our storage. It's amazing. I'm sure it's an antique. I don't know how to use it. I don't know how to turn it on, <laughs> but it's cool. So of course we took it like, okay. what a great gesture. Thank yes. you. Yes. And she donated all of her fabric and she, I mean, she's wonderful. She had, um, her name was Miss Virginia. So Miss Virginia, if you're still around, thank you. And we love you. Um, but she labeled everything. I mean, she collected buttons and, you know, zippers and all the things. So it was amazing. But so we give the kids um, a blanket and a pillow. So in addition to having this kindness bone mm-hmm. and assuming the best of the whole world and being homeless yourself, you're also just really, really passionate about this and can account all of these details of people you've met the situations that put them there and the things that keep them there. Yeah. Why? What is it? What, what, what is motivating you to say, because your organization didn't start two months ago. Yeah. You're like as passionate today as you were (laughs) when this organization started. Why? Because they matter. Their stories matter to me um, because they're people and they're my friends So if you've ever heard me speak, I'm always like, oh, those are my friends. They are. They know me. Mm. Literally everyone on the streets knows me. They know my name. Some of them have been to my house. They all know my kids. Mm -hmm. They're part of my family. I always want them to feel like they belong because that's important. We do better for ourselves when we know someone is supporting us. Mm. So that is my secret sauce, right? The secret sauce is making them feel like they belong. Um, because when you feel like you're a part of something, you don't want to let other people down, right? Where was your social group? What, what allowed you, what were the support systems and the things that helped you get out of there into where you are now, or at least kept you from going to jail and kept you off the streets? I, I didn't have one. I think literally I, so Cara was my case manager, uh-huh. um, at the halfway house. Um, what saved me, I was able to get a job because the halfway house was $17 a day to live there Okay, or else you'd go to prison. If really? You, yeah, absolutely. It was part of the system. So $17 a day, you had to raise $17 a day. Plus the and what was And what was minimum wage at the time? Um, I made $6. So $6 an hour. Mm-hmm. And so, so funny story. I got to the halfway house. You have to get a job. So you had to work at least three hours just to pay minimum wage and probably more than that because yeah. of taxes and yeah. social security, et cetera. Yeah. Per day. So I had, um, when I got to the halfway house, they told me all the rules, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. We go and, um, I had to look for a job. So I'm out job searching. It was really tough. Um, my little sister was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. She was the manager at a hot wing restaurant. So of course, naturally I went there and I'm like, Hey, my little sister's name is Darla. And I'm like, Hey Darla. So, um, I need a job. So this is her time to shine. You, I'm the manager here. You're going to have to listen to me. Okay. If I give you a job, you have to listen. She's 16. Mm -hmm. I'm an adult. Mm -hmm. 
I'm like, okay, kid, relax. She's like, no, like you seriously, you have to listen to me or I'll fire you. I'm like, okay, kid, whatever you say, I need a job. Mm -hmm. So my sister helped me get a job. My little baby sister helped me get a job for $6 an hour. I had that go. It was rough. It was rough. I worked there, so I had to walk because I had no money to catch the bus or anything. So I walked a mile to work. I would work 12 hours because I not only had to pay the $17 a day for the halfway house, but I also had to pay restitution for my crimes. My restitution was upwards of $12,000. Wow. So whoever... What I was that, court costs and I things guess. like that? Yeah, whatever. whatever and them the housing system. you in the jail? Yeah. Okay. No, because you're paying for that. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I guess so. I don't know where the restitution goes. Um, but yeah, so so I I worked the 12 hours a day. I'd walk a mile, work 12 hours a day, and, and walk which, back. Which, which state was this? This was in Colorado. Okay. I wasn't allowed to cash my checks in the halfway house. So when you got a paycheck, you had to take it to the halfway house, and you gave it to them. You gave it to them, but you couldn't cash it there. No, no, no. They cashed it. They did whatever. Like you were not allowed to have money from your check. Huh. And so the crazy thing was there was a time where I took my check to the halfway house and whatever they did, their accounting stuff. They said my check was short and I got in trouble. So they thought that I was like asking the boss like to give me money because oh. I guess that's what some people would do and they give you the rest in your paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, no. So come to find out my boss had been stealing my, like giving Whoa. me a short paycheck. I had no idea. I mean, I'm not good at math. I wasn't, I just, cause I turned my check in. I wasn't concerned about it. It sounds I, like you're just very, very trusting Marla. Also that. It's I a, mean like really yeah. trusting of adults Yeah, and really expect them to do the right thing. So I have this bone in my body um, that says that the world is inherently good. Mm. I still believe that to this day. Yeah, me too. After all the things that I've been through in life, I literally should probably be a savage right now. (laughs) But um, I literally still believe in the good in the world. I don't believe that most people are bad at all. Um, And that's something that I actually, that's kind of a badge of honor for me. Because a lot of people in my situation, yeah, would be tarnished, yeah. you know, um, and so yeah, so so I I learned my my job was stealing my check, um, some of my check, but anyway, they rectified it because the halfway house was like either you either they're gonna fix this or you know explain because I I wasn't stealing from my check, I wasn't gonna go to jail for this job doing mm. what they did, but they rectified it. Um, so anyway, you don't get your check. You turn your whole check in. Well, what happens is your check gets split between the halfway house fund, your restitution and savings. Mm. So the good thing about this was that when I was exiting the halfway house, I actually received a check for like $1,600, which was my deposit and first month rent for cool. a one bedroom apartment. Okay. So this was the first time I had an apartment by myself that I paid for and I didn't do anything illegal to get it. That was Marla Batista of The Batista Project. Her project will be available on the WMNF podcast page where you can hear more about her story and others she's trying to help. Next up, we'll hear from local teens as they learn about interview skills and what healthy means. I model interviewing by asking the first question of their counselor, Tokara Jackson. 
they follow up with their own questions directed at her and each other. What were the things that when you designed your curriculum, you really wanted to drive home to make sure that your students learned? So I wanted to really um, take away the what some of the things that are taught in the media and on TV are very it's it's false. Like what? Um, a lot of the things. So they they teach you about uh, nutrition. They say low fat, no sugar, things like that. Everything has sugar in it. They say no sugar, but I I teach reading the back of the label. Sucralose is sugar. So if you see sucralose in everything that says no sugar, it has it in it. Also teaching them about breakfast. Um, breakfast is, it, it means breaking a fast. It means break fast. So you fasted while you were sleeping. So the first meal of the day, they teach you that it could be sugary cereal or uh, pork, bacon, and all like eggs. Like all of that is what they label as breakfast. And that's not necessarily what you have to eat as breakfast foods. A lot of the time they say, eat a, uh, they teach kids to eat a healthy meal before they do testing. But then you go to the school and they give them processed food and sugary food. That's not the healthy meal that they should be eating to get their brains focused for testing. So that's a, a lot of the things that I teach the kids. How did your mental health affect you studying for your master's degree? A good question. Um, I took what I experienced in my childhood and I knew that I want to help people. And so I did a career change. First, I wanted to be a nurse. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to work. I'm going to be able to help people and be able to help kids. And then COVID happened and I was like, um, no, this is not for me. And so then I'm like, what else can I do to be able to help? And so I fast tracked myself. I went, I already had credits from, of course, others, my other degree. So I say, I can be a social worker. This will be great. And so I went and I did my bachelor's. And then after that, I was talking to a few people and they were like, no, you'll be great. I'll be a great therapist. You can use your life experience and your education to help these youth. I was like, sounds great. So I went to do my master's. In between that, another program came up for mental health for adolescents. I was like, I'm going to do both of them at the same time and work. It was challenging because... I had four jobs in two master's programs, and some days these mental health breaks were necessary. Some days I couldn't get up. I'm like, I, I just need a break. It's so much. I'm just going to lay here. And I'm not going to do any work. I'm not going to do any schoolwork. I just can't do anything. And sometimes I felt like I need to give up. I need to quit. But then I looked at the the goal, the the why, why I was doing what I was doing. And I'm like, this is going to be beneficial to others. It's only going to be a short amount of time. And I'm like, this stress, this schooling, all of these things that happen is going to be for this amount of time. I'm going to look back and be frustrated if I quit. So I just kept going and kept going. And working with you all motivate me. I'm like, okay, I can see the need. I can see where I need to do, where I need to be. I'm going to keep doing it because I knew you guys were watching me. Right? And so when people are watching you, you behave differently. Right? And so... I just kept motivating myself to keep going, and now I'm done. How do you stay mentally healthy and stable? I have a whole regimen. So first thing first is cut off anything that alters my emotions, my well-being, um, me feeling safe and healthy. So if that's cutting people off, um, distancing myself from people who trigger me or causes me to not be my best self, um, things that simple as putting my phone on do not disturb at 9 p.m. If you have an emergency, you call 911, you pray, or you go to God or whatever, but you won't be able to reach me at the 9. How do you feel about therapy? 
This is a good question. Um, I feel that therapy is a good asset. Um, I know for a lot of people of color and communities of color, therapy is kind of taboo um, because of the stigma that is attached to it. But therapy is good because you have a way to get things off your chest without being judged and from someone who's unbiased to your situation. And sometimes, you know, there's different types of therapy. So there's talk therapy, there's music therapy, there's art, there's different types of therapy. You have to talk to someone to find out what's best for you. So I believe it helps because it gives you an outlet where you may not have had one previously to get everything off. When you said there was stigma behind therapy and taboo with the black community, what did you mean by that? So in black and brown communities, stigma can look differently. So when you see someone who has mental health, first thing people say, oh, is they crazy? And then that automatically make you feel ashamed, right? Guilt. I don't want to go talk to anyone because they're going to think I'm crazy. And not all mental health means psychotic or bipolar. Uh, it could be anxiety. It could be depression. It can be grief. Um, it could be different things. And so the stigma alone of which is negative attributions or negative thoughts around something can keep you from getting the help you need. Okay. And last question is, are you okay? Yes, I'm, I am very okay. okay. I'm excited about this interview. Thank you. <laughs> How do you feel about therapy? Um, I've been to therapy, but not like a real therapy because we have a school counselor in our schools, but honestly, I don't really trust them because, I don't know, I just never really trust the school counselors, but my therapy is God and my mom, and that's just like my most important therapy, and they help me a lot. My mom helps me a lot, gives me good advice, and God always helps my spirit feel better, too. What do you do during your mental health breaks? What I do on my mental health breaks is I journal, I read, and I clean my room. And it's always good to do a little reset in your room because a clean room is like a clean mind. So it's always healthy to have a clean room, too. And it's also a good space for your mental health. Thanks for listening to Slice of Life, produced at WMNF in Tampa, Florida. For their production assistance today, I want to thank Dwayne Terry, Wade Jones, the Skills Center of Tampa, and Rhonda Flowers. Music for the show is Foggy Headed by Audio Mirage from the Creative Commons. If you have a comment or want to learn how to produce your own slice of life, send me an email at randyz at wmnf.org. That's R-A-N-D-I-Z at WMNF.org. Until next week, I hope you can squeeze the rest of your slice of life.